as I said, this, this Wednesday is Independence Day. And you have all kinds of celebrations. But I want to take you back in history to the origin of it. The, the fight with the colonies in England had been going on for about a year when in June of 19, or excuse me, 1776, a man wrote a resolution. His name was Henry Lee, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia. And he wrote a resolution saying it's time, it's time to separate He said, resolve that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. They gathered five men representing the colonies to come together. Among those, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams. Thomas Jefferson was tasked with writing a formal document of separation. That document came to be known as the Declaration of Independence. They met again in early July to discuss this, and they adopted the resolution with some minor changes to it by a vote of nine to two. And only one signature was entered on that document that day, and that was John Hancock, the president of the Continental Congress. And he wrote it very large with great flourish. And the reason he did that was it was a statement to the King of England, and he says he wanted to make sure he could read it without his glasses. This was a a big deal. And you might think that uh, when that was accepted on July 4th of 1776, that they finally experienced peace and freedom. And nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, that began the war, the Revolutionary War uh, in fierceness. For the next six years, England tried to grab a hold of control over the colonies. And the reason the colonies had separated was because they felt that England had no longer been, been a parent to them, but had become a tyrant, imposing taxes and laws on them that they felt were unfair. And so these wars went on until the final war in Yorktown, Virginia in 1781. Then they were free. You know, I think there's some parallels with our Christian life because I think we often have the idea that when I give my life to Christ, the biggest battle's over. I now am going to have a life of peace and tranquility and satisfaction the rest of my life. And while there has been a major battle won in your life, in many ways the war has just begun in fierceness. Because when you break ties with the one who used to have control over you, he's not very happy about it. And the reason I I say this is because many people who are Christians get very discouraged when things don't go the way they should, when they face opposition and difficulty in their lives, when they feel like God's not coming through like he should. And they say, this is harder than I thought. And there's this temptation to go back to when life was easier without God. But I want to just remind you of this. Anything significant in life requires a price. If you're going to get a degree... If you're going to earn a promotion, if you're going to be excellent at a craft, you have to devote discipline, time, and study, and all these things in it. You have to pay a great price. Sometimes financially, of course, time, energy, all play into that, but it's because it's worth it. And it's so true of the Christian life. It is not easy, friends. I would never uh, uh, mislead you by saying that if you follow Jesus, really, things will be easy. It's not a picnic. It's not a river cruise. It's a war. And that's the, that's the thing that we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks. We're actually going to spend the last three weeks in the book of Ephesians looking at this topic of spiritual warfare because we face an enemy that is cunning and crafty and is after you and is after me. So I want to look at Ephesians chapter 6. 
and read verses 10 through 12 today. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, you can follow on the screens. If you have a phone that's with a Bible app, you can just pull that up and we're going to read. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He begins with the word finally. Finally. End of his letter. Remember, the letter didn't have verses and and chapter breaks. It was one long letter. And at the beginning, the first half of the letter is largely about the doctrinal foundation of the faith. Here's what God has done for you in Jesus. Here's what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. You've been raised from the dead. You're a new creation. All these wonderful things have happened because of the grace of God. And then he goes into chapter 4 and chapter 5 being very practical. This is how you live it out. Because of these truths, this is how they should play out in your lives. But then he comes to this place right here. It says, finally. It's as if he's saying, of all that I've said, this is where it comes to its conclusion. This is the part you really need to listen to because if you miss this part, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. Finally, and he, and he goes through a number of images of the church through the book of Ephesians. We've learned that, it, that the church is, is the family of God. That's a, that's a very endearing picture. We read that the, that the, um, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in us as a, as a congregation. We learn that the, the church is the body of Christ. And then we learn when we talked about marriage that the church is the bride of Christ. And now we see another picture, a very vivid picture. The church is the army of God. And you know, that's something that this culture should relate to really well, being so near to Fort Carson, uh, having family members, maybe us ourselves, friends, neighbors involved in the army. We know, at least we should know, that being part of an army means there's discipline. There's knowledge that has to be learned. There are skills that have to be honed. There's endurance. There are, there are risks. There are dangers involved in this. So true of the Christian life. We should, be, we should have the very same things. We need, there's things we need to know. There's ways we need to be equipped. There's disciplines we need to practice in order to engage in this spiritual battle because every person here, even though you may not be a soldier at Fort Carson, you are, you are either a soldier in the army or you're a victim in the war. The truth is this. You're either a casualty or a conqueror. It's one of those two things. Either you're a casualty or a conqueror in this great cosmic conflict. So today I want to focus just on this war and the parties involved in it. So let's look at that. First, the battle, who's it with? It's with the devil and his angels. That's who Paul says it is, the devil and his angels. He says uh, the devil is the one scheming against you along with all the forces, and he gives many different um, descriptions of this, but generally the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These are angelic beings, they're dark, they're evil. It's Satan and his angels. Now, he lists a lot of different words. Some of your Bibles will use different words like um, principalities, powers, authorities, rulers. All these different words are words that were very familiar in the Greek culture because they represented geographical rulership. So all these different regions had the rulers, there was principalities, there were dominions, there were thrones. All of these things were very common words in the physical realm. What Paul's doing is saying there are also these same kind of um, levels of rulership in the spiritual realm. See, we learned about that in the first chapter. In the first chapter, Paul said 
that we've been raised by the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And he says, do you remember what kind of power that is? This power that raised him and seated him at the right hand of God above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's speaking there of the spiritual realm. In fact, he, said, he, he connected that with the word the heavenlies or the heavenly realms. And then in chapter 3, he talks about the gospel spreading and being spoken to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. These, this word heavenly or heavenly realms or the heavenlies refers to the spiritual realm. Heaven is part of it, but it's not just heaven. The evil spirits aren't dominating heaven, but they're in the heavenly realms. They're in this other realm. Do you know there's another realm outside of this realm? That's, that's very real. And that's why Paul is describing what we would say is a spiritual realm. These, um, these foes we're fighting against are spiritual. Are spiritual. Meaning they exist in another dimension. They're very real, and yet they're spiritual. And just because uh, you can't see them doesn't mean they don't exist. Where'd they come from? Well, In Colossians chapter 1, this isn't in your notes, but listen to this. It says, by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, both realms, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Some time in history, some believe it was in the first few days of creation, some believe prior to that, God made a spiritual world filled with spiritual beings. And much like the earthly world that, that we're very familiar with, there was rebellion. And, and some of these angels turned against God. Satan was one of the high-ranking angels that turned against God. We don't have time to look at scriptures that, that would give you evidence for this. But, but in pride and arrogance, he wanted to have more authority. And so he wanted to be God. And he turned against God. And he and maybe up to a third of the, the angels rebelled against God with him and were cast down to roam the earth. And so on this earth, they roam. And so when God tells Adam and Eve, I'm going to give you dominion over this earth, Satan goes, hey, that's my job. That's my job. That's what what I was made to do. And so Satan's been in the business of usurping our role as rulers on this planet, and he has taken our place. And so he rules on this earth. He reigns. He reigns because he's the spiritual being made by God. Even, even though you can't see him, he's there. We should be familiar with things that are invisible and yet so real. I mean, we see that in many areas of our lives in things like sound waves or um, electricity or germs. Do you know there was a time in our history up to the 1800s where it was believed that the cause of, of most illnesses was polluted air? If you inhaled air that came from garbage dumps, from decaying animals and vegetables and things, that, that's what made you sick. And so they, they then treated people in a certain way. And then this idea uh, was bantered about that maybe there was something else causing illnesses. And people thought they were crazy, but finally two scientists with good reputations, Louis Pasteur and Richard Koch, came up with what was known as the germ theory that there are tiny microscopic pathogens that invade the human body and bring with them disease and make us sick. And it changed how doctors treated illnesses and they became much more effective. Now, what if some of the things going on in your life are being caused by these invisible spiritual beings, namely Satan and 
these angels that serve him? Is it possible that there are things going on in your life that are actually caused by spiritual beings and so a medication won't treat them and psychotherapy won't treat them? They've got to be treated a different way. Now, I'm not saying that everything is caused by that, but what if there are? See, Paul just finished this whole, whole section on relationships. And he says, uh, you know, husbands and wives, here's how you relate. Parents and kids, how, here's how you relate. Uh, masters and slaves or bosses and servants, here's how you relate. And he's talking about all these things. These are realms where there's a lot of conflict, right? Marriage, family, work, a lot of, lot of relational conflicts. And yet Paul pauses to say, you just need to know that they're not the enemy. Your husband's not the enemy. Your parents aren't your enemy. There is an enemy behind them trying to use them to destroy your faith. And it's a spiritual enemy. And you need to fight the right front. And so these are spiritual enemies that we are fighting. Now, why don't we see much of this in the Old Testament? Like, all of a sudden, Jesus comes and there's demons everywhere. He's casting out demons left and right. Where, Where have they been? Well, they've always been there. But if you go back in the Old Testament, here's what you'll find. People were just always gravitating to worship false idols, the pagan gods, the gods of the other nations. And this is my, my belief, that they were, they were no threat to Satan. And Satan said, you guys keep doing what you're doing. I don't have to work hard at you for you guys. You're, you're worshiping these idols. You're not worshiping God. Way to go. You didn't have to work hard. Jesus comes in and Jesus says, uh, hey, you've been the king of the hill. I'm bumping you off. And Satan goes, Whoa. And so now it becomes, it's like, it's like gloves off, bare knuckle brawling with Jesus. First thing Jesus does after he gets baptized, remember? First thing, goes into the ring with Satan in the desert. Okay? I'm going to show you who's boss. And for 40 days, Jesus says, I can beat you even without eating. I'll fast for 40 days, I can still beat you. And he, and he knocks Satan around for 40 days. And then he goes out, and the first thing he does when he starts ministering, he starts casting demons out of people. Fulfillment of the Old Testament promise that when the Son of Man comes, when the Messiah comes, he will set captives free. So he's going around preaching kingdom of God, preaching forgiveness, healing people, and he's casting out demons. And so so we see that in Jesus all through his life, this, this conflict with these spiritual beings. And Satan decides, you know, he's going to use the religious leaders as his pawns, even uses one of Jesus' own disciples to betray him and lead him to a hill to be crucified. And, and Satan really thought, that's the end. We're done with him now. I can resume my kingship on this earth once again. What he didn't know was that Jesus would conquer death. So this battle's going on, and, and that's why you don't have to, you don't have to look at this, this evil world as always dominating because in, in 1 John chapter 3, Verse 8, we're reminded of this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, he came to forgive our sin. Yes, he came to give us life eternal. And yes, he came to defeat that, that dastardly one who's been causing you havoc day after day. And yet you don't even realize it because you can't see him. He's spiritual and he's powerful. Paul says he's powerful. Um, these are not cartoon characters. Satan doesn't have a pitchfork and a, and a long red tail. He's slyer than that. He's more wicked than that. And the reason I know he's powerful is, is because Paul says, you need armor to fight him. And you don't need just a piece of armor. You need the whole armor of God. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. But you need it because 
he's a tough dude. One time Jesus was casting demons out of people and, and someone said, hey, it's by the power of Beelzebub, the power of the devil, that you're casting demons out of people. And Jesus said, that's so stupid. Think about it. Satan's casting out Satan. Satan wants to live in people, and then he's pulling them out of people? That doesn't make any sense at all. A house divided by itself will not stand. And Jesus says, here's what I'm doing. If you want to steal a strong man's possessions, first you tie him up. And then once he's tied up, you can go in and take anything you want from him. First of all, you need to know this. He calls, he calls Satan the strong man. Not the strong arm, not Frank Azar. <laughs> Though some of you may think he's the devil. <laughs> he's the strong man. And Jesus, he's strong, but I can tie him up. When I tie him up, he's like a pussycat. Because when I tie him up, I can take what no longer belongs to him and belongs to me. And so Jesus was announcing that he's powerful. He's not as powerful as me. See, Satan is a powerful being. The the demons are powerful beings. We see that. They're, they're, They're scary. They're frightening. And yet they're not more powerful than Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is a level above him. Humans are not a match for the power of the angels. But the angels are not a match for the power of God. Yes, they are powerful. They are not as powerful as God. God is uncreated. They are created. So we don't have to to worry about that. But yet Satan struts around trying to convince us he's the big man on campus. In in 1 Peter 5, here's what Peter says about him. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Resist him. He's He's just blowing hot air. He's just puffing his chest up and roaring, trying to intimidate you because he is powerful, but he's like a caged lion. He's not going to hurt you. Jesus used terms, um, several times Jesus called Satan the prince of this world, meaning he has power in this world. Paul said he's the the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's the God of this age. He has power. He has authority on this world, but he doesn't have authority over those who give an authority to Jesus. In 1 John 4, verse 4, it says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than him who is in the world. He's powerful, not as powerful as God. And those spirits are evil. They are evil spirits. If you were here at the very beginning of this series, the second message um, was, was taken from the book of Acts, chapter 19. And, and in that message I shared with you, because we're giving some background to the Ephesian culture, these were very um, spiritual people. They, they got into witchcraft, sorcery. They contacted spirits. They were into all this kind of stuff. A lot of people today are like, a lot of New Age people like to contact the dead and contact spirits and all that. They were doing that. They had magic books that actually gave them formulas to do that, steps, processes to do it. So Paul comes into town, and he's casting demons out of people, and there are seven sons of a man named Sceva, a Jewish leader, and they say, hey, we, we can do what Paul's doing because Paul's just telling p- demons to leave in the name of Jesus, so we'll do that. So they go to a house where a man is possessed by a demon, and they say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out. And the man goes, I know Jesus. I know Paul. But I don't know you. And... Uh, then he goes all Billy Jack on him. He just, he just starts, this demon-possessed man just starts wailing on those guys. Seven guys. Beats him up. It says they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. 
I mean, this is wild. This is the kind of stuff that you'd read and see in a horror movie. And those guys just got out of the house screaming. He's ripped the clothes out. This demon is powerful. And he's evil. And so here's, here's the result. People all over town go in their closets, take out their sacred scrolls that they used to conjure the spirits up with and say, you know what? These aren't just harmless spirits out there. They are real, but they are evil. And so they, they, they put all these uh, scrolls and books in a pile and they burn them. And Paul says the value of those books was up to $10 million. Meaning these aren't cartoon books. These are serious books. Serious books of how to contact the spirits and how to, how to get in touch with them. And they just thought, I can, you know, I, I, I get a spirit that helps me and I talk to him about, about my crops or about my business or about my, my marriage. And I contact these spirits and they're good to me. And all of a sudden they realize there are real spirits, but they're not good. They're not good. They're, they're evil. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. We are going to just focus on the, the, the God that Paul's been preaching about. And so you need to know, and Paul defines these as evil spirits. Uh, the, another picture Paul uses is darkness. It's a dark world. That's another picture of evil in the world. Evil equates to darkness. And so when the nations are in darkness, means the nations are kind of, they're lost. They're, they're, they're following the ways of Satan. They're, they're following the path of evil. Good is contrasted with evil and that good is light. And so when the gospel comes into an area or when Jesus comes on the scene, it's the entrance of light. These two, these two are, are such contrasts, darkness and light, both very powerful. And when light enters a dark room, it drives it out. It's very interesting. You can turn on a, a light bulb and drive out darkness. You cannot turn on a dark bulb and drive out lightness. There, there's nothing, there's nothing like aggressive about the darkness. The darkness is simply this, the absence of light. If you want to make a place dark, get rid of every source of light. You know that's what's happening in our world. You want to see a dark nation? You want to see a dark community? You want to see a dark family? You want to see a dark soul? Get Jesus out of there, and it'll become dark. And see, this is the imagery we see all around us. Star Wars, light and dark. Uh, the old westerns and the, and the hats they wore. The, the, the black hat and the white hat. You know, good versus evil. Paul's saying this. But, but listen to what Paul um, writes about in the book of Colossians chapter 1. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He, he's on a rescue mission to lift us from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and put us in another kingdom, the kingdom of light. So... The battle is against Satan and these dark angels, these evil angels, rebellious angels, demons if you want to call them that. And the battle is the Lord's. It is his battle to fight and his battle to win. And we see this theme repeated in the Old Testament. There's a, there's a story that you're pretty familiar with, at least most of you, called David and Goliath. Now, Goliath is this huge man, giant of a man. He belongs to the Philistine army. And at one time, the Philistine army was, was camped up on top of one hill, and the Israelite army on a hill over here, and between them was the Valley of Elah. And every day, um, Goliath would come down the mountain, and he would position himself in the valley in what was kind of known as representative warfare. He said to them, give me your best man, we will fight. And if he beats me, we will become Israel's servants. But if we beat you, you will become our servants. 
And every day he would come out and he would defy the armies of Israel to bring a man to fight him. And they would stand up there and you could hear their teeth chattering. Nobody wanted to come out and fight Goliath. So one day, shepherd boy comes to town. He's bringing Jimmy John's delivery to his brothers. And so David comes in and says, hey, what's going on? Who's that guy down there? And he's Goliath, and he's taunting us, and, and, and he's big. And, and the king has actually promised that if someone would go down and defeat him, he'll get his daughter in marriage, he'll get all these other rewards. And David said, well, how come nobody's taking him up on the offer? He says, guys, someone's got to do something. I'll do something. He says, I'm a shepherd boy. And I have, with my own hands, killed the bear and the lion with the help of the Lord. And I can surely take this Philistine with the Lord's help. So he goes to Saul, and Saul says, well, you better put on my armor. So he tries it on. It just doesn't fit. It's too clunky, and, and says, you know what? I'm going like this. I'm taking my staff, I'm taking my sling, and I'm going to grab five little stones, and I'm going after that guy. So he comes down into the valley. You know, uh, Goliath comes out, you know, does his, bring a man to fight me. And he's got an armor bearer in front of him, and then <laughs> walks a skinny little kid with a slingshot and some stones and a stick, and Goliath is offended. Like, he cannot believe this is the best of Israel. And so he just, he's just in, in anger, says how he's going to rip, rip this guy apart, just going to rip him to pieces. And David says, no, you're not. Before this day is over, I will not only defeat you, I will have your head in my hands. And then, and then Goliath, I mean, David tells him this, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David had confidence, not because of his own strength. He knew the battle was the Lord's. See, one of the themes of the Old Testament that you hit again and again is the battle is the Lord's, and if people would just let God fight for them, it doesn't mean they don't show up, it doesn't mean they don't get in the field, but if they would let God fight his battles, God would prove faithful. We see that with a man named Jehoshaphat. It's another instance in the Old Testament where these uh, armies are invading uh, the nation of Judah. King Jehoshaphat is a good king, but he doesn't know what to do. He's fearful of this large, massive army coming, so he calls a fast. And, and people begin to pray, and he, he cries out to God, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then uh, God raises up a man named Jaziel, and he says to King Jehoshaphat, Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed of this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And if you follow the story, they, they, they go out, put, put, a, put a choir in front, and they begin to praise God, and without lifting a weapon, uh, the, the army begins to turn on themselves. See, the battle is the Lord's. God is fighting a battle. Jesus is fighting a battle. Um, it started in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, not only did they receive curses that would last throughout, uh, throughout the, the history of mankind, but the serpent received a curse too. And listen to the, the curse for the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her, and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He says to the serpent, there's coming a child of Eve down the road, and, and there'll be opposition, and you will inflict some harm on him. It's like bruising his heel. But I'll tell you what, he will then crush your head. And this is the battle between Jesus and Satan all through his ministry, all through the crucifixion. The crucifixion seemed like the crushing blow. No, that was the, that was the bruising of Jesus' heel. Jesus said, I saw fate, Satan fall like lightning. When Jesus describes Satan as a defeated foe, he, he, um, one of his parables, 
He talks about this place of destination where Satan will go one day. He calls it the, um, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's his ultimate destination. He is being defeated because Jesus has won the war. So if, if there's Satan and these evil, evil angels and there's God, then what do we have to do with it? Ah, that's very important to know because we're the prize. We're the spoils of war. We're what both are after. And so I want to talk to you about how Satan and God are both after the souls of people. See, Satan ran up against a wall. He, he couldn't defeat Jesus. And if you can't defeat somebody, you go after what's dear to them. Some of you remember in the last century, there was a famous crime where the celebrated aviation hero, Charles Lindbergh, and his wife Anne, discovered that their 20-month-old son, Charles III, had been abducted. Not only kidnapped, they later found out he had been killed. Devastated them, broke them. You want to hurt a parent? Go after their kids. Even our own state of Colorado, for many, many years, there's been this unsolved mystery of what happened to a little girl named John Benet Ramsey. I can't imagine the agony of parents when someone hurts their kids. And Satan said, I can't, I can't get you, Jesus. I'm going after your kids, your children. Those who, who give their lives to you. See, when you give your life to Jesus, the scripture says you become a child of God. And that's when the battle begins. See, up to that time, you're not a threat. You're in the kingdom of darkness, whether you know it or not. But when you say, I, I want to be part of this kingdom of light, he goes, okay, I'm not giving custody up that easily. And I'm going to put up a fight for you to get you back. And there is a, an intense fight for your soul. And it's going on even right now as we speak in this room. Satan is working to defeat you and me. And you can go to one of two extremes. You can deny it and ignore it. You can say, I don't really believe in this kind of demon stuff. I mean, that's the, we're educated. We're Westerners. We know better now. We know the, that Hormones and chemical imbalances cause things and makes people go kind of weird. It's not demonic spirits. And the, those tribal peoples, the ones who write those horror movies, they're the ones trying to push on us this view of demonic spirits. But let me just pause and say, are we, are we saying Jesus was wrong? Are we saying Jesus didn't know what he was doing when he was casting demons out of people that he should have been given pills and given therapy? No, he knew there was a real spiritual power. Our Western world has tried to deny that. I'm not saying that everything that we see is caused by demons, but we say nothing is caused by them. No illness, no disruption, nothing is called by evil spirits. I want to invite you to do something. If you, if you know a missionary, ask them. In the field where you've worked, have you ever seen anything that you would consider to be demonic activity? Most of the time, they don't say those, share those stories publicly because they know that most people would roll their eyes. And, and, and they, they, they know that they might risk support. People think they've gone off the deep end. But the reality is, they are, they are very real. And the reason why we see this activity very often on the mission field, I think, is this. Where would you expect Satan to put up his greatest fight? Well, where the gospel's advancing. See, when, the, when Jesus said that not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church, when the church is actually going into the places where the gates of hell have been set up, where he's had a stronghold... That's where Satan has gathered his army of troops. They're going to put up a big fight there. That's why wherever you see a great work of the Holy Spirit, you'll see a great work of evil spirits. There, there, there's this great conflict going. But where, 
where people have become passive, Satan goes, you're not a threat anymore. I can leave you alone. And I'll just tell you this. If you don't, if you don't see Satan at work around your life, let me, just, let me just say this. Maybe it's because you're not a threat. Maybe it's because he feels he's safe leaving you just where you are. He likes the direction you're going in your life. And so he says, I don't need to do much else. I'm going to put my attention over here where they're preaching the gospel. See, in Acts chapter 26, Paul described this mission of of taking Christ into dark areas. He said, God sent me to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And wherever, wherever darkness is being removed, Satan is upset. You know, if you go back in time, just think of, the, of Ephesus. For centuries, Satan has had control. And now Jesus comes in. Oh, he doesn't like that. But Jesus is coming to take over. The other extreme could be not only deny them, but go to the other extreme. I'm afraid of him. I, I believe he's there. I'm just afraid of him. You don't have to be afraid of this evil power. I mean, we see the stories in the Bible of people being possessed by, by demons. If you're a believer, you won't be possessed by a demon. If the Holy Spirit's in you, there's no room for another spirit. But you will be harassed. In fact, there's a greater danger than being possessed by a demon. It's, it's, being, it's being indoctrinated by a demon. We're going to look at that next week. His, see, if, if you look at demon-possessed people in the New Testament, all they did is hurt themselves. Other people says, I don't want to have anything to do with that person. When you become a deceived person and you begin to teach others, now you can influence a whole bunch. You can influence a whole family. You can influence a congregation. If Satan gets a hold of your mind, you're dangerous. Those are some of the tactics we'll look at last week. One proof that God is living in you is that you have this fight going on over sin, but you're having victory after victory over Satan. John says we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If God is in you, if you're seeing victory over sin, if you're allowing him to move you forward, Satan may tempt you. Satan may may whisper to you. Satan may dangle things in front of you, but he cannot touch you. Why? Because greater is he that is within you than he that is in the world. One other verse I want to read to you. There's so many verses we could have covered. But in John, John talks to believers at one of three levels. Some are very new believers, calls them children. Some are very mature believers, he calls them uh, old men. But then there are the rest of them. They're kind of in the middle, kind of in those youthful stages. He's, and you may be a, a Christian who's, who's not new, but you're in that middle stage of I'm growing. He says, this is for you. Here's what you need to hear. He says, I write to you young men. I would say young women too. Because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Did you catch that? Why'd you overcome the evil one? Because the word of God abides in you. What does abide mean? To abide means you have an abode, a home. If the word of God has a home in you, you'll conquer the evil one. That's why getting in God's word, reading his word every day is one of the best defenses against the evil one. In fact, when we go into the, the spiritual armor, it says the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Now, the word of God is the scriptures. But do you know what the word of God may also be? Jesus himself. Do you know what Jesus is in John 1, the word of God? The Bible says that that name is the most powerful weapon you possess. When people went and encountered demons, do you know they just drove them out with the name of Jesus? 
And when they began to preach to these dark areas, they said, there's no other name under heaven given among men but the name of Jesus. The apostle said, if you call on the name of Jesus, you will be saved. There is power in the name of Jesus. And today you have an opportunity to declare who is Lord of your life. Make there be no doubts about it in your life. I am his and I serve the living Lord. Because to say no to Jesus is to say yes to Satan and his evil forces. It's one or the other. So why don't you just surrender today? Say, I trust in the name. I hold to the name. The beautiful, wonderful, powerful name of Jesus. The name that is above every name. The name that Paul said in Philippians 2, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Why, why wait to a day in the future to do that? Do it right now. Make it clear in this cosmic battle whose side you're on today.